Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host and star of the show, Hall of Famer Jim Cott. And this is Cott's Corner, episode 184 in our network. Got a little Georgia on my mind there early on for our intro. I'll let Jim explain as we get into the show the significance of that. Always has an interesting story for, for me before the show, so I, uh, I, I love that one. So we'll include that in the beginning if he doesn't mind. But to our audience, 17,000 Almost 800 subscribers uh, leading up to this show. Well over 700 questions this morning. Uh, get back to one audience member live. Uh, today was about proving people wrong, um, changing that mindset to proving people right or proving yourself right. Um, but continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review so we can battle those analytics of podcasting like they do in baseball. We can keep providing you great content like Jim provides you every week here on this show. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher are our streaming choices. If you got another one, let me know. Uh, again, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us on all of those, and we are engaging, so don't be afraid to engage us back. 72 countries, grassroots baseball, all the way to MLB front offices, and we're just trying to build a better baseball IQ out there, and this show does it every week. And a disclaimer to our audience, uh, and our audience seems to like this style, but just prepare to embrace some of the uncomfortable truths that are put out there in baseball, because this program, like all our programs, has no time for the comfortable little lies that may be told, so we're going to hit you straight on. So, Jim, welcome back to your show. Glad to have you. Well, thank you. And, uh, Dave, yeah, that intro with Georgia on my mind, uh, I had the thrill today of playing with Hoagie Car- Carmichael Jr. Now, our younger fans would not recognize that name, perhaps, but his dad was one of the great uh, composers. His most famous song was Stardust. And uh, Hoagie grew up in the Hoagie Jr. out in the Hollywood crowd. He's a wonderful golfer, a wonderful man, avid fly fisherman. So, my wife Margie uh, had a great time talking uh, fly fishing with him, so that was a that was a treat to uh, to meet him and to play golf with him. Yeah, and I know we've mentioned this on our show before, but uh, you have a a golf record out there, right, for hitting a, hitting your age at one time, righty and lefty. Share that. Yeah, I did that at age seventy five. Uh, Hoagie and I were both talking today. He's two year, two months older than I am. He'll be eighty five in September. And, we were talking about how our athletic ability deteriorates <laughs> greatly, and uh, particularly after 75. But I did shoot my age both right and left at age 75 because when I took up the game, left-hand equipment was not available on a mass-produced basis. There was a famous South uh, uh, South African golfer, uh, New Zealand golfer, I'm sorry, named Bob Charles, who uh, won the, uh, at the time, called it the British Open as a lefty. But uh, lefties were were scarce then, and so I had to learn to play righty. So I really played more golf righty than I did lefty, and that's my more athletic side. So I was able to, you know, at least get it around decently from uh, both sides of the ball for a while. Yeah. No, that's a great, great stat. Most people have a hard time uh, golfing properly one hand, so... It shows your your diligence and your concentration level and your athleticism, um, regardless of how old you are. So I think you don't sell yourself short. Um, well, you know what I you know what I think it really points out is that if 
and there are there are pitchers. Uh, I'm trying to think of. I think it was Billy Wagner, who should be in the Hall of Fame. I hope he is soon. I believe that he was a right-hander, broke his arm, and trained himself to throw left-handed. He did, and he, yeah. um, he his he. I think his father, if I remember the story, his father was a farmer, and uh, he he bailed hay, and he got stronger bailing hay, making right the right side his dominant side. In doing that, and I don't know if that was deliberate or because of the broken arm or whatever it was, but he yeah. uh, it helped him with that. Yeah. But uh, the body, the body, if you train it, uh, you know, and that's that's really leads into what is so sad uh, about the way they're training pitchers today. You know, they they don't throw as much between starts. They don't throw every day. We're having more and more arm injuries. Kumar Rocker, who was this. Yeah. Highly touted draft pick. He's now going to have the Tommy John surgery, and we're training him in a way that that they have to be coddled and babied. And these guys are physical specimens with all this ability, and they could be. I thought of it yesterday. Kevin Gosman, seven great innings, comes out of a tie game. Toronto loses, and a wasted effort by a great starter. And and if they were trained to to go the distance, which they could be. Uh, it would it's it's a better game with the pitch clock, but it would be so much better if you could see Garrett Cole and Kevin Gosman going head to head in the ninth inning, or Justin Verlander and Clayton Kershaw, and we're just missing that. Yeah. Now, how much of that goes into and and if I'm not segueing to the right spot, we'll, we'll, we'll move. How much of that goes into your thoughts on the best ways to train? You know, going slow first to learn to go fast. Well, you know, I'm learning to play the guitar and. Uh, and, and some of the information and articles I read are, you know, don't don't try to become an accomplished guitar by, you know, going from chord to chord with a lot of speed. You have to learn it in slow motion and be able to pluck every string clearly. And I said, that reminds me of pitching. We used to start, uh, and Johnny Sane did this, and Eddie Lopat, two of my favorite coaches, we would actually practice at 40 feet. And at 40 to 45, and you just spin the ball. You know, you'd throw one with backspin. Then you'd turn it a little bit and throw it with what in those days we called the slider, which now is the cutter. Uh, the slurve, which is half curve, half slider, they now call the sweeper. That's been around forever. It ended up in the seats last night when, uh, when I think it was Jason Adams from Tampa threw one to Pete Alonzo. Uh, yeah, they, they go a long way when you don't throw right. But yeah. a lot of these a lot of these terms are we would develop the spin for those pitches from like 40 feet. And then you would gradually move back to the pitching rubber and then you'd kind of apply the power a little bit later. But I think that's true with a lot of sports. I have a, a golf teacher that uh, I think I'm going to see early next week, uh, Kay McMahon, who is a very accomplished golfer in Minnesota. She's in her 70s now. And uh, she has a website, education, K-A-Y, and she trains her kids, her, her young golfers, by just hitting 20-yard shots just to, you know, get to, to, to find the center of the club face and develop your technique. And unfortunately, uh, in baseball, we're giving a kid a ball and saying, uh, go throw it as hard as you can, and then we'll work on the other stuff later if they can stay off the operating table. And yeah. uh, it's just training exactly in reverse. And I think that's one of the reasons when I go, like when I went into twins camp, even though I'm a, I'm an ambassador for the twins, 
the pitching coach had no interest in talking to me about about what you know. I think they're afraid to because when they find out that my ideas are different, and then they'd have to address the fact that well, you know, he did pitch twenty five years, and he was fairly successful. So maybe some of what he did was right, and they don't want to hear that. So they just avoid talking to us, and they go about you know, looking at their video and their statistics and then uh, hoping that uh, that if they have a pool of 20 pitchers, they can keep 10 of them healthy for six months. Yeah. Well, and and I, 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 don't, I don't know if I want to go this direction at all, but just a quick dis- conversation I had with an analytics person yesterday involved with StatCast. And my question to him was, when you're competing at a high level and you're in the middle of that competitive phase of your your day, whether it's a season, a game, uh, whatever it may be, a series, that anytime you interrupt that with deep learning, you interfere with the ability to be intuitive, the ability to be creative, and you you lose your genius. And I don't mean to throw that word out there lightly. And uh, I asked him to refute that. And uh, we're 48 hours later. He still hasn't refuted it yet. So he's thinking about it. He's in deep thought right now. So I agree with you. I have a question about spinning the ball. Um, when you're spinning the ball at short distance, um, and I'm sure it's it's equally distributed, but which which finger are you focused on? Are you spinning it more with your thumb over the top? What's your technique, or does it depend on the pitch? Well, if if we were on video, I practiced, and I would do this in the in the dugout. And actually, the byproduct of it it really strengthens your fingers. But I would try to grip a baseball with my index and middle finger curled around it, with my thumb off the ball. Now, you have to use a little saliva or rosin or something to create a little tackiness. But if you can grip it with your index finger and your middle finger around the ball, and then usually those, those last two little pads of those fingers, they will, they will be over a seam. So you've got a little something to grip there. And then I would just lay the thumb on the ball as light as I could. If a pitcher did, and I would do this when I coach pitchers, if you did a little a test and you grip the ball as tightly as you could with your thumb and then you move your wrist and now you take your thumb off and you lay it on the ball as lightly as you can and you move your wrist, it's like your wrist moves twice as fast with that light thumb grip. So that was, that was the main thing. And then the finger pressure on the middle or the index finger, that's something you, you sort of have to try on your own and find out, well, if I put a little more pressure on the middle finger, uh, the ball will will give me a little, in my case, a left-hand pitcher, a little spin going into a right-hand hitter. But I even found that uh, if I put too much pressure on the middle finger, I got around the ball too much. That's what today they're calling a sweeper. Okay. And if you're a left-hand pitcher and you throw that sweeper to a right-hand hitter, you're just asking for trouble. So I found that by keeping the pressure on my index finger, and Johnny Sane was big on this, stay behind the ball, behind the ball, as long as you can. And then right at the end, it's maybe like you have an egg in your in your hand and you're you're like squeezing the egg right now. You're you're using that wrist action more than all elbow and shoulder. And that might be hard to visualize since we're just doing audio, but uh yeah, and that's what we would do from 40 feet just just tinker with the spin and what the finger pressure was to make the ball go this way and that way. And then I, sh- I threw a screwball. 
So I would put the, the pressure on the index finger, but then I would turn, I would turn the wrist inward. I would pronate it inward. Uh, so the ball went as me being a left-hand pitcher down and away to left-hand hitter uh, to a right-hand hitter. Uh, and that's a very effective pitch. A lot of pitchers that had great change-ups like Johan Santana and Tom Glavin and Frank Viola. Uh, I'm sure I'm missing a few, but uh, left-hand pitchers like that, that, uh, that had kind of a screwball release to it. It would be a, a very good change-up. Yeah, I can visualize it. And I'll find a picture. We put it, we'll put it on with the show. It's funny when, when if you look at the great, great shooters in basketball, as they're getting ready to, they hit their their launch pad, it's called, where the palm of their hand is facing the, the ceiling of the arena. Uh, you'll see that the ball is is rested on their finger pad, and that's kind of what you're describing when you're grabbing that ball with, with two fingers to get the grip, and their fingers are not even touching the ball yet. Yeah. As that, the fingers touch the ball, that's where they get that extreme backspin, the Steph Currys, the Damian Lillards, the Ray Allens. Um you know, the Larry Birds, those are the guys. If you look at pictures closely, um, when kids grip it too tight, that's when they get that poor backspin or almost that, not a knuckleball, but, and that touch gives you what you talk about pitchers all the time. You want that rhythm, that timing, that feel. And, uh, no, that's a, that's a great uh, guy. We went from golf to, to baseball to basketball. I think we're touching all, all sports and all lives here today. What, what did you think of Jennifer? Jennifer Streeter wrote an article kind of going into the Tommy John you know, the yeah. pitchers train in the training the improper way. And right. what, were you, what were your thoughts on that? Let Especially- me back up just a minute and finish off that uh, that grip pressure issue. Because I, when I was able to meet the late, great Sam Sneed, one of the great golfers of all time, I said, Sam, I used to have a quote I cut out of a newspaper that you had about, uh, you know, about grip pressure. And you said, and, and rhythm, and you said, you wanted to walk off the 18th green with the same rhythm and tempo and grip pressure that you had on the first tee. And I said, I compare that to pitching. Your first inning, you're kind of loose. You're getting a feel of the mound. Ball's coming out of your hand nicely. Now it's the seventh inning. is tie game, man on second. Now, can you keep that, maintain that rhythm and grip pressure during those situations, because I think that's what destroys a lot of good pitches on tight situations. I'm sure it's the same for a hitter, grip the bat too tight. So a lot of it has to do with uh, with grip pressure. But going into Jennifer Streeter's article, yeah, it was, it was. Uh, I, I hope the people that uh, that read it found out that Tommy John's not really the doctor. It was Frank Job, <laughs> <laughs> and how many hundreds of pitchers that you know he's responsible for putting his career on the line and going through that surgery that ended up being successful uh, that now came up again at lunch today there's not a day goes by that the name tommy john doesn't come up tommy will turn 80 next week he's battling some cancer issues now i stay in close touch with him and i'm hoping to be on the committee when his uh, class is up to get in the Hall of Fame, because he deserves to be in. I think he deserved to be in there before I did. But certainly our careers were very, very similar. And uh, the the effect that he had, and yet the flip side, I don't think any pitcher has ever called him and asked him uh, about how his rehab went. And then the sad thing about that article, and you've got some details to go in as well, I'm sure, 
is that you have parents now that have a 14 or 15 year old and they want to go in and have the surgery because they think their child's arm is going to be better after that. That's just ludicrous. Yeah. And I don't know where that misconceptions ever come about. And parents talk about their, like it's inevitable. We haven't had our first Tommy John yet. It's like having your first child. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, I, I shake my head because that's not, you don't want to have that. And I've said, I've got probably a dozen parents weekend or so ago. I was with Jim Rooney, um, a former scouting director for the Orioles. And he had his son was playing in a tournament with my son, Tanner. And, and we were just sitting talking about all, a lot of stuff that you and I go back and forth with. And we heard, we heard three parents speak out loud about that. And he and I both, you know, we cringed and we, we addressed it head on with them. Um, you know, I don't know where it's been lost that, you know, throwing properly and such, I guess there's such an inertia for success early nowadays that people just skip steps. I mean, it goes back to what you started with, you know, you start slow to get to the fast and they want to start so fast nowadays. Well, that's where, you know, there, there have been several things over the years that I think have been detrimental uh, to the game and uh, detrimental to pitching. And it started with a radar gun. And the radar gun was actually invented from a baseball standpoint by Danny Litwiler, who was uh, a major league player for a while and then a well-known coach at Florida State. So he went on, I think, to work in the uh, in the Reds organization. So when I got the job as pitching coach for Pete Rose, uh, in the first meeting I had with the front office and the minor league development people, uh, what would you like to do with a radar gun? So I looked at a door. I said, is that a closet? They said, yeah. I said, just put them all in there. <laughs> you know? But then I, I said, no, there, there is a good use for them. And that is to find out the difference in the speed of your pitches. I agree. I agree. So if you have a 90 mile an hour fastball, you want in general, about an 80-mile-an-hour changeup. It might not be the same for every pitcher because it's kind of the way the hitter reads your arm coming you know, coming through the pitching motion. But when you find out, uh, and my example was Mario Soto, who was a great pitcher with the Reds in the 80s, and he had uh, the circle changeup that Pedro Martinez had, and uh, I think Mario might have been one of the first ones in the big leagues to be known for that uh that changeup and he was a fastball changeup pitcher. But when, when we found out if his fastball got say seven or eight miles an hour within the, or his changeup rather within the speed of the fastball uh, hitters would time it. So you kind of find out what's the best differential between your pitches. That's where the radar gun can be effective, but there's so much downside because we've taken the radar gun and scouts instead of using their their eyes and their instincts, I'm sure there's still a lot of them that do, but they're forced to look at how hard the pitcher throws. And uh, if he doesn't throw consistently in whatever their target is, whether it's, you know, mid-90s or whatever, why he, he doesn't have a chance. And that's so sad because, um, you know, pitchers eventually find out that it's movement and command. Uh, and then if you have like a little extra gear with your fastball, while well, you can use that once in a while. But uh, just to do like what Rocco Baldelli, the manager of the Twins, told me in spring training is these days, every pitcher tries to throw every pitch as hard as he can. And, of course, every hitter swings the bat as hard as they can. And that leads into another topic we were going to talk about, and that's the 
the facial injuries and the injuries to pitchers as well as hitters. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, as you're as we're going into this, I they've taken something very pure. Like I, I agree with your your point on the radar guns. I think that's the perfect way to use them. And then they've taken the other kind of component of pitching that you talked about, spin, working on spin from forty feet. And they've made it so extreme nowadays, this chasing velocity and chasing spin rate, where they've taken two things in pitching that done in moderation and intelligently have now are, in my mind, catalysts for these injuries. So, um, yeah, but the, the uh, let's let's get into the facial injuries because you, you had an interesting take on, again, me being a hitter, I thought of immediately from the hitter standpoint, but you brought up a great point about pitching too as a fielder. So yeah, let's, let's move into that. The facial. Yeah, I was sad to see, you know, I got to know Kyle Farmer real well in uh, spring training with the twins and boy, he took that fastball flush, you know, and his, in his, it had lip surgery, I think, but the hitting now, I think you mentioned the term barrel drop. Yeah. These, uh, the way they're, so they're, they're, they're so obsessed with the launch angle. And you see these guys on YouTube and the internet. It's going through Major League Baseball, too. It started there. And their first movement is to drop the barrel of the bat, which, again, you can't touch the fastball that way. There's no way. And it's a one-track cookie-cutter swing. It's it's like my global pandemic watching Major League Baseball hitters now. But um, it's, it's going through the youth levels and these hitting instructors or swing coaches, I should call them. They're dropping that barrel. And they're opening up that front side. And it, it scares me from a mechanical standpoint, but from a safety standpoint that we're talking about, I mean, it opens that kid's front shoulder up and you cannot get out of the way of that fastball as we're talking about coming right at the chin. Yeah, that was the example with Kyle. And I remember back in the in our era when, you know, the brush back pitch was common to push a hitter off the plate. And if a hitter, uh, if you did hit him, it was usually in the back of the lead shoulder and hitters would always say, you know, I don't care if he throws at me from, you know, the shoulders below or pushes me back. It's hard to get hit in the head, uh, you know, because your reactions can be so closely. But if you are diving into the ball and opening up that, that front side, and you mentioned barrel drop, that is totally counter to what hitting coaches and and we didn't have a lot of hitting coaches but I remember Jim Lemon who was a power hitter in in uh, the big leagues for quite a period of time and I was fortunate as a pitcher because I was a decent hitter so I got to hit with the extra guys every day so I took a lot of batting practice and he would say never let the barrel of the bat fall below the flight of the ball so he always wanted that barrel to be above the flight of the ball. And now, like you're saying, now they're dropping the barrel because they want it under the ball. Now, now, I have to say that some of the hitters, I think, have gradually switched over to where they're hitting the ball up the middle and using all fields, particularly now yes. that the shift has been banned. Not so as we're seeing their singles. Yeah. The rate of singles and doubles is up. And that may be, be because, of the, uh, because of that, because they're not trying to launch the ball as much. But uh, the the other side is the pitchers and the uh, the young man that suffered a skull uh, a skull fracture the other the other night. Uh, when you looked at the replay, why pitchers that throw so hard, they they are not anticipating that that ball might be hit back at them, and they're in no position unless they have extremely good reflexes to get that glove up. And I, I'm just afraid. If that doesn't change, if they don't start training their pitchers, uh, 
uh, you know, to, to anticipate or to feel their board or have their motion. Bob Gibson fell way off to the first base side, but he was such a great athlete. He recoiled and he was always ready to catch any ball that was hit back at them. And if, uh, if pitchers aren't trained to do that, I think we're going to continue to see some very serious injuries. Now, as, as a pitcher, obviously your, your main function is to throw strikes, get the guy, get the batter out. But the, the ending of your motion is set up in such a way that you got to put yourself in a safe position to be your field, your position, I guess is the common phrase. Is that, is that uh, true? Yeah, I, I think, you know, and where I had such an advantage is Bobby Chance was my hero. Bobby was a little lefty, 5'7", you know, one uh, was the best fielding pitcher of his era. And, and uh, they'd always say, here's Bobby Chance. He lands on the balls of his feet. He's facing the hitter. He's in position to feel the ball hit back at him. He's in position to go left or right. So as a kid, I just mimicked his motion pitch after pitch after pitch. And fortunately, I've had the chance to meet Bobby over the years now in the Gold Glove uh, Awards Dinner. He just turned 97, and uh, he was he's still trying to play a few holes of golf once in a while. But I mimicked my motion after him so that I remember when I went to spring training in, in 58 and went through the pitcher's drills, the coach said, kid, you look just like Bobby Shantz. I said, well, thank you. That's a compliment. But we, you know, we sort of trained ourselves to be the fifth infielder once the ball left our hand. But that's because our motions were such that we weren't throwing maximum velocity. We were, we were finding a cruising speed. We were finding the strike zone with our pitches. And then as we finished, why we wanted to be facing the hitter. So if he did hit it back at me, I was in position to feel it. And I can't tell you over the past, I don't know, 10 years that I've watched games and I see the balls that go into center field that are missed and have cost team games. And I've argued sometimes they're not really argued, but I, I say to the statistical people, uh, with all that information you have, how many wins do you think that's adding to your win total? And some might say, well, you, you know, we think it's worth three or four extra wins. I said, well, you're losing six games because you aren't training your pitchers to feel their position properly. So it's still what you do on the field more so than what you find on the computer. I agree. I, and, and you think it's a, and that's a great point also about that chasing velocity, the, the, the torque that they're, I guess they're discombobulating their bodies. They're not putting their bodies in a, in an athletic position at the end to do what you're saying. Is that my summarizing that right? Yeah, I think so. You know, I'll go back to golf. Davis love the third was a, was a great golfer. Davis was, exceptional in his air because he was tall he had a big arc and he hit the ball a long way and so one of the teachers was Jim Flick uh, who knew Davis's love uh, Davis's dad well and, and Davis spent some time with Jim Flick and one of the drills was to try to hit a 150 yard drive with a full swing well now you're talking about a guy that might be able to hit it 300 yards with maximum effort but what this forced him to do was swing with rhythm and, you know, and sinking up the body so that he still would make solid contact, but he hadn't added the power yet. That was just a training drill. And the same thing is true in pitching. You know, if you just go through your motion, uh, half speed, three-quarter speed, and find the strike zone, and then when you find the strike zone consistently, then you can begin to add the power. But nowadays, it's all power. 
And then, well, we'll go to the command later, and which is why that's part of the reason why hitters are getting uh, hit up in the head and the face because guys are, they just don't have command of the ball as they should. You know, it's the same with hitting too. Good hitters can develop into power hitters if they develop that back control, but very rarely will you see a power hitter become a good hitter um, because of that, uh, as, as you're talking about that valuing of control in the bat, much like you're talking about throwing the baseball and even the, the golf club there. And I, I can honestly say I could probably count on one hand in my life, whether it was BP or in a game where I took a swing like full out where I was going a hundred percent, just cutting loose. I, I think about that and it, it would hurt. And I think maybe that's yeah. some reason why these guys are getting injured because that's to take full swings like that with the amount of strength and power they have and how light those bats are. And even, even the balls, um, I can't imagine that's good on the body. That's got to contribute to the injuries as well. Yeah, I think, you know, some great hitters that I played with, Harmon Killebrew was my teammate for a long time and one of the great power hitters of that era, 573 lifetime home runs. He, he His balance was, was just perfect. He seldom swung off balance. So he had a controlled power swing where he wasn't really trying consciously to hit the ball out of the ballpark. But if he swung in rhythm with his natural power and balance, it went out of the ballpark when he barreled it up. So the power was a byproduct of his rhythm and with his swing. And the same thing is true with pitching. You know, if your motion uh, is synced up you, you with your body and your arm speed and then the ball comes out of your hand nicely, that's when the hitters, I know Mickey Mantle got to first base one day and said to, to Harmon, uh, I think I had walked him, and, and uh, he said, you know, this kid is sneaky fast. It doesn't look like he's throwing that hard, but the ball kind of sneaks up on you, which which is, uh, you know, what you want as a pitcher. You want it to look like you're really not trying to throw that hard, but the ball's getting up there quicker than the hitter anticipates. What made you sneaky fast? Well, I think because I did have a, deliver, uh, a deliberate delivery. It wasn't real fast, and then – um, you know, the snap of the ball, the wrist action was at the end. Uh, there's powerless effort, and then there's effortless power. Mariano Rivera was the best example of effortless power. It just looked like Mole was just playing catch with the catcher, and all those, you know, your left-hand hitters are breaking their bats left and right. And then you'll see a pitcher that looks like he's rearing back and he's going to throw a hundred miles an hour and it comes in there and it ends up over the wall. That's, you know, that's, that's powerless effort. <laughs> I like that. I wrote that down. I'm going to use that. I get it. I get a phrase from you every show that I steal. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, if I say it enough, I think I made it up probably like most of my coaching in, the, in my time. Well, I, I uh, you know, as far as the, the pitchers and hitters go kind of just quick back to the the hitters what makes them so comfortable diving in like that? I mean, what about the game right now allows them to feel like, because I'm thinking as a pitcher, at least when you were pitching, maybe not so much statement, maybe that's the answer that you own that inside of the plate. That was yours. Um, our hitters, is their mindset different nowadays? Is, is there something that they don't have that fear anymore? Oh, absolutely. You know, if you watch batting practice underneath the tunnels, which most of the new stadiums have now, they have a a couple of cages or if you're watching in spring training and one of the coaches out there pitching, I mean, all the hitter is working on is his swing. They're diving in and, and they, they never for an instant think that that ball might be where we use the expression 
if, if they're starting to take aggressive swings, make that next hitter move his feet. Let him know you're out there. And then, you know, once he gets a pitch inside, maybe it's, you know, at the belt or between the armpits and the belt, and he has to move out of the way. And all of a sudden, I think that does put a little bit of hesitation in diving into the ball, and that just isn't done anymore. You'll see teams scoring, you know, uh, crooked numbers, six, seven, eight runs in an inning, and no hitter is is asked to move their feet. I know when Tom Kelly was managing the Twins, you know, they won two World Series under TK in a span of five years. And if a, a hitter, a pitcher started giving up a few hits, he said, hey, you got to make these guys move their feet. They're just diving in like they're taking batting practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that is, it, it doesn't mean you're trying to be a headhunter or hit hitters, but that's part of your arsenal yeah. to uh, to make that hitter a little bit fearful of the ball might come inside. And all it takes is that split second to destroy his timing. I mean, whether you throw, whether you're the hardest thrower in the league or down near the bottom, hitting his timing, as the great Warren Spahn said, pitching is to destroy that timing. And that's what you do with the change of speeds and control, moving the ball in and out. And if you're just consistently throwing the same speed one after the other, eventually, big league hitters, I mean, now I think more than ever when uh, Aroldis Chapman was the only pitcher that it was, wow, he throws 100 miles an hour. Well, of course, when he gets to the plate, it's not 100 miles an hour. But now uh, we, we hear of, you know, tons of pitchers that are throwing that. Well, in order, you know, they're geared for that. So in order to destroy their timing, you have to figure out a way to not throw quite as hard and have a little more movement on it. Yeah. One of the things, one of the indicators, and my son Tanner, as we talk about on the show, he's a catcher and you got to meet him a couple weeks ago. Um, he gets aggravated when he sees hitters get in there when he's catching and they start digging that back foot in. And he tells me that's an indicator to them that they're way too comfortable. Yeah. And, um, was that, was that something that you guys looked at as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, if, if, if a young hitter stood against Bob Gibson and he was digging himself a, a, a you know, a hole there, and Gibson would just cross his arms and stare at him like, how deep you going to drink you dig that hole? You know? Yeah. But certainly that was, that was something that, uh, that pitchers paid attention to. Yeah. And just, uh, just for the audience, what, what, would, what would be your technique for moving a guy's feet? Well, what I did, uh, and I'll fast forward. I did this when I coached the the Reds pitchers in uh, the mid '80s. When they got done uh, throwing batting practice in spring training, I would have them come down to the bullpen, and I had a double sided helmet, so I would stand in like a hitter, and I would lift my arms up uh, so my elbows, my lead elbow, was like the same level as my armpit. And then I would say, okay, I want you to throw five pitches underneath that arm, which would be like my bicep, underneath right at the armpit, and make me move back. I'll be ready. I got my helmet on, and I'm I'm expecting it in there. And, you know, some of them would throw it behind me, but eventually they learned, and then I'd turn around and I'd do it right-handed. Because I said, if all of a sudden you want to move a hitter off the plate, and you haven't practiced that, well, you have no idea where the ball's going. So you have to work on that pitch the same way you have to work on throwing a strike. 
You know Unfortunately for pitchers today, that the game is such that they won't allow a pitcher to do that. If you throw inside, and uh, like it was Manny Machado not too long ago, I mean, he got a pitch inside. It wasn't anywhere near hitting him. Well, he threw his hands up. It looked like he was ready to go to the mound. It's like yeah. they see it's a surprise to them. They're just no, you're not supposed to do that to me. I want to dive in and swing as hard as I can. Well, no, I'm not going to let you do that. <laughs> I would love to see one of these modern day pitching coaches or throwing instructors stand in there like you did and tell their their pupil to let's chase max velocity right now. Yeah, that, that's daring right there, what you did. Yeah. So obviously, you had a lot of confidence in your at least your your pitcher's uh, abilities to obtain command at some point in time, but uh, God bless you. I I worked on that too. We had spring training. We had two mattresses hanging down from a, you know, from a big iron frame, steel frame. And then it had, uh, it had one square hole, which would be down and away. And then another uh, hole, it was kind of, I'd say maybe eight inches from top to bottom and a few inches wide. And that was off the strike zone inside and we had two mattresses left and right this is back in the late 50s so when i got done batting practice we had one of our uh, kind of retired coaches and sit down there with a bucket of balls and his little chart to keep track of how well we did and then you took five shots lower away five shots up and in then you went over to the other mound and you took five shots at a right hand hitter and you did that every time you you threw batting practice so you learned uh, and trained yourself uh, that that was a pitch, just like throwing a strike was a pitch. So some some of it's philosophy, but it's governed, unfortunately, by Major League Baseball over legislating, like they they tend to do sometimes. Yeah, I, I just think you know, there's they're uh, they're so protective of uh, of hitters now, and if a ball is thrown in there, uh, the umpires and, and most of them are you know obviously younger, up and coming umpires and. Uh, they, they just don't understand maybe that that's the way the game was played years ago. So they come out from behind home plate, any pitch that's thrown up there, and right away it's a warning. Yeah. Well, then if both benches are warning, then the next warn, then the next pitch that comes up there, the pitcher's thrown out and the manager. So right away they're taking, they're taking that part of the game away immediately. Yeah. Whereas and we have- years ago, you know, years ago, uh, umpires understood that, that that was – if you knocked down Tony Oliva and, and pushed him off the plate uh, or hit him, well, then we're probably going to hit your best hitter when he comes up or push him off the plate. And then we might push the pitcher off the plate as well because the pitcher still hit. Yeah. And we didn't, wouldn't necessarily hit him or hurt anybody, but that was a way of taking their aggressiveness away from him. Yeah, that, that gamesmanship is, is missed, I think. Yeah. yeah. And there's a right way to do it. And you, you've explained that before on the show as far as, you know, no, nobody's trying to headhunt. Nobody's trying to hurt anybody. But un- oddly enough, they're not trying to do it. But we see more guys hurt nowadays when they're not trying to hurt them. And same thing with the training. We've got all these guys that are physical specimens right now. And, you know, as, as we talked before the show, it's a record number of games missed this year. 3,500. Wow, isn't that something? That article that there have been, it must be up over 3,500 games missed by players now on the active major league roster. I think the Yankees are up at the top. Aren't they 300 and some? Yeah. They're, I believe they're still number one as of today. Yeah. Cause Stanton is still there. He's on the list. And, uh, but that's here, here are these 
these club owners are playing, paying guys millions of dollars. And then when you think of the money, the daily money that they're earning and they're missing 3,500 games, I wonder what the total dollar value is that owners are playing for guys that are just sitting like the two of us are watching the game. They can't do they can't do anything about it. Uh, what a waste. We have a, sh- a show. Uh, he's been on twice as a guest, Justin Orenduff, and he is a former uh, professional pitcher, uh, blew his arm out with Tommy John, and, and he has devoted his life to researching uh, to help pros and everyone alike to not make the same mistakes he did. And he has some of the great numbers. And one of the numbers I'm going to ask him for that. And I'll get it to you is he has a number as how much money has been lost due to pitchers missing their, their starts in their games due to injuries. So he's, he's got those numbers, but it's, it's staggering. Um, yeah. Belief, but it's not just pitchers. It's, it's, it's just as bad with the hitters too. Right now. What is his name? Justin Orenduff. And he, and he pitched, in the big leagues or in minor leagues? Didn't make it to the big leagues, but he was a high draft pick. Um, uh-huh. And he had, he had, I believe he had two surgeries. He may, tried making a comeback again the last time, and it just uh, couldn't work. But he's had an influence on uh, Justin Berlander in terms oh, of – Oh, good. He's, he's made some positive he, – he's very well thought of by – he and Berlander are very close. Um, he doesn't tout it. He doesn't post on it. He doesn't – but um, – they grew. They came up the line together through college. They competed against each other, and then through the, the professional ranks. And I think he's had a, a good influence on him adjusting his style of pitching. But uh, very. And my my two children actually. He's he put a, together a little program for for kids. And my my oldest son and our oldest daughter, who's a baseball player too, uh, they both do go through his mechanics. Uh, and it's just like you said, go slow to go fast, and it's been amazing. And I'm not a pitcher. I'm a second baseman with a second baseman's arm, so my arm never hurt. <laughs> like, <laughs> you could roll it over there, huh? <laughs> yeah. You kick it over. So this is a this is a throwing program that he can. Uh, he hopes that will will help pitchers either rehab or avoid having to have the surgery. Yeah, mostly avoid. Um, yeah, great. He's yeah. getting young, and he's he's had some good success. Some people have bought in, and. We've had him on the show twice, and I think he's got the year of some major league clubs right now. Yeah. But as, as we talk all the time, sometimes, you know, like as you said, if you bring up something to a pitching coach and it causes them to question their indoctrination, to them that's like death. They can, you know, they, they've got to – now they have to almost pretend they didn't hear you. Um, yeah. They've got to reexamine, you know, what they're doing day to day. But somebody's got to be accountable for this stuff, I believe. Sure. Yeah, I won't even I, – I would go in the Cleveland clubhouse because I coach Carl Willis, and he's their pitching coach now. And he, you know, he understands that, you know, he just, you know, has to adhere to a lot of the principles that the statistical department is using. And yet he knows as a pitcher he came up uh, differently. So he's trying to find that, you know, those coaches that are that think that way are trying to find that blend. Like the Twins have a, a really talented minor league coach right now named Tucker Frawley. And Tucker played at Yale for my friend John Stuper, and then he coached at Yale for a while. And now he's in charge of the infielders of the Twins. And he's the only one uh, when I was there at spring training that – and a lot of that, the way we met was – because of my friendship with John Stuper, 
and being a teammate that he wanted to seek out some of the thoughts I had. We sat next to each other during the game, but uh, he is one of the few that would do that. So unless it was to go to talk to Tucker or Carl or some coach that I really knew well, I, I don't even go in a big league. I wouldn't go in a big league clubhouse anymore because, you know, I'm from a different time and a different mindset. And I understand that. And I understand they're different. Uh, I don't agree with them, but I can't change what they're doing. So my best thing is just stay away. Yeah. You know, and you're not alone with that feeling. I, I, I talked to a lot of former players. Uh, I get to speak quite frequently with Ted Kubiak. Uh, we talked about him last show and uh, he feels the same way. And I kind of joke with him. I said, you know, Jim and I speak about the same ideas. And if I were a player and I know I'm not of this generation, I'm 50 years old, but I would have bugged the heck out of you guys to the point where you got a restraining order on me where I couldn't be around you anymore. I'd want everything you had because that's, yeah. I mean, that's how you learned. If I were knowing what I know about Ted Kubiak, if I had a son that was an infielder, I would seek out Ted Kubiak before I would seek out anybody else that's on any major league coaching staff right now with no disrespect because I told you on a previous show when he was with uh, Kansas City, yeah, uh, we would watch them taking uh, ground balls before a game. I mean, he was as smooth and mechanically perfect as anybody you'd want to see. And that's why, you know, I'd look at one of our infielders and say, watch that guy. That's the way you want to, you know, I think you as an infielder know, I used to hear head down, tail down, glove down, nine out of ten go under. Uh, that was kind of the expression with infield. So he was always in that you know, that perfect position. Oh, absolutely. He, he's as, as he talks about fielding, like you talk about pitching. I mean, it's yeah. there's a meticulous uh, way that he looks at it as do you. And it's, I mean, it's every little detail and it's the same concept. You go slow to go fast. And he, he actually, uh, my, my son Tanner, who's a catcher, he also is a middle infielder and he, uh, he has me send him videotapes of Tanner so he can, great. He can give me tips on, I'll, I'll, uh, you know, and I, I love it. He's like, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to be brutal. I said, you be brutal, my friend. I don't, I don't like the, the halfway. So he's, right. he's been very complimentary to the development that we've done with Tanner. And that means a lot to me, but he also gives us some tidbits, just little tweaks that, uh, and he's, he's very good about it. I said, try it. If it works for him, do it. If not, don't. And, uh, yeah. and I love that about it. So hey, going back to pitching now, you, you, there's a young pitcher who used to be in the twins uh, with the old birds now is, is really coming on as a strong closer. Uh, Yenier Cano with what's your, what, what's your love affair with him? You, you just tend to like how oh, he's doing. My goodness. You, have you looked at his stat line this year? I just was peeking at, I mean, I saw it going on, but I didn't look at it as detailed until we prepped for the show today. Yeah. Unless he pitched yesterday, but he, uh, 20 innings, he's given up four hits. Yeah. No runs, no walks. 23 strikeouts. And when you read the accounts, it's all of a sudden like he's just got this confidence. He's got a fastball that moves and sinks. Uh, of course, they have all the statistical numbers. I mean, it sinks like an unbelievable amount. So he's got all kinds of movement to go along with the power. And the Twins had him, and maybe, you know, just getting it's, – it's no criticism of the Twins, but sometimes – that changes scenery and you hear another voice or maybe you've got a player, a pitcher on that team, a fellow Dominican that says, Hey man, you've got good stuff. Challenge a hitter, go after him. 
whatever it was, has turned uh, him into a, a really dominant closer this early in the year. You hope it keeps, at least for Brandon Hyde's sake, you hope it keeps up. But there, there are a lot of stories like that, that if, if a player got in the right, the right place, mentally and physically, what they couldn't do with one team, I, I'll use myself and as, as an example, the Twins thought my career was over. I was, uh, I was halfway to 35 years old. I wasn't pitching well. And they thought I had a lot of miles on my arm because in that case, I think I was up to, uh, you know, close to 3,000 innings. And they thought I was done. Well, I get to Chicago and I get with Johnny Sane and he teaches me a little different uh, motion. And Chuck Tanner, who can make you, you could be the lowest pitcher in the league and he would make you feel like you're going to win the Cy Young Award. He was such a positive influence. And all of a sudden, they're giving me the ball every four days, and I get the 300-inning seasons and 20 games just by that change of scenery. Yeah, you mentioned that last year, and I, I agree with that. I've, I've got some up-to-the-minute stats on Cano right now. Um, through his first 17 games now, he's yet to allow a single run or a walk. Yeah. He given up a run or a walk, struck out 25. I think you said that, given up just four hits. And he was, you know, to the Twins, they, they flipped golden tickets. I mean, the Twins got a good pitcher as well, back with Lopez, I believe. But, yeah. you know, he's he was brutal when he came up. And he's an older guy. He's 29-year-old from Cuba. Right. So, you know, the, all the, you know, the, the numbers probably went against him as, as coming on this strong. But, boy, with that, he's probably going to take the closer's job, I would imagine, in Baltimore pretty soon from Batista. Yeah. See, and that goes where the, the statistical information that, that uh, organizations have up there in the front office, that's where that can be valuable, not on the playing field, but maybe they've got scouts uh, that are, that are finding out whether his velocity or whatever it was, his movement that all of a sudden is a lot better than it was before. I think that Tampa has done a great job with that over the years on both ends of it. They find guys that maybe haven't done that well. And then they get them like right now, uh, for the last few years, Pete Fairbanks has been good. Uh, a couple of years ago, they had Diego Castillo, and then they had a Fair Fairhausen, I believe. And all of a sudden, they get rid of them. Well, I think they've noticed that, well, these guys aren't the same pitchers anymore that they were with us. And quite frankly, I think that, that organizations have to use their relief pitchers so often that they just wear down. This Adams who has been the closer with the Rays. Now he's gotten touched up a little bit lately, but you just can't use him every day today like they did years ago because they're not trained that way. But, you know, I think that's where scouting and maybe using the uh, statistical information they have access to could be, could be helpful in the front office. Yeah. I got a chance to see, I, I watched him last week just by chance. I love watching Adley Rushman, the catcher for Baltimore. Um, yeah. He's a, he looks like a throwback type of player, switch batter, uh, puts the bat on the ball, good mechanics behind the plate, but had a chance to watch him pitch. And, and he threw, Cano threw a 95 mile an hour sinker. Yeah. And, uh, I would think that would be of all the pitches that I faced. And again, being a switch batter, you got a little bit of an advantage. I don't, that's the one pitch lefty or righty. That would be like my waterboarding. Like I would, I would, uh, I felt like I would have a hard time. I didn't see that a lot, but the, the few times that I did, um, I didn't like it. Let's <laughs> just say that. Oh. I didn't like yeah, it. Yeah, and I think somebody mentioned to me the other day that uh, 
Alex Rodriguez, I believe, maybe have said it on one of the telecasts that he would like to see the strike zone widened and then not, you know, not as, as generous from top to bottom. Well, I would feel just the opposite. I don't think a hitter should be asked to swing at a pitch that's five inches off the outside corner. You know, he's not trained to reach that pitch. But I want the full strike zone from the letters, which it used to be the armpits, to the knees. Because as you said, you know, if you see a couple of letter-high fastballs and then all of a sudden here comes that 95-mile-an-hour sinker and you got to change your eye level, to me that's got to be the most difficult pitch to hit. You can adjust from in to out, I think, better than you can from up to down. Yeah, I would agree. I think the the in and out is, you know, that's that's a matter of just being balanced. And if you keep your hands inside the ball, it's that's a matter of you can hit the in pitch the other way or the out pitch as a pull based on the depth of the pitch. So that doesn't affect the hitter, I don't think, as much as the up and the end. The up and the down is, as we talked earlier with the with some of the hitting instruction that, that you got, was keeping that, that bad head above the ball. Sure. You that consistently. And you let your eyes fluctuate, uh, you're going to have a hard time with those. And, and the upper pitch, as you know, as a pitcher, it gives it gets on you quicker. And you've got to be you've got to be almost thinking top to bottom as a hitter. And if you're not, you're going to have a hard time handling that chest high. That's right. Pitching 101 in its simplest form is high and tight, low and away. Get your off speed pitches over when you're behind in the count. And that and that's the key to it. If you can do that. I hope, and I have to give another disclaimer before we start our shows. I got to remind people to keep a legal pad by their their chair when they're when we have the show on, so they can take notes. Because I do the same thing sometimes. I feel like co-host and, and learner at the same time because I'm writing notes as you're speaking. I pick up different tidbits every time. So um, if you don't if you don't feel right with the twins not listening, you know you got an audience of one here at least. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I think what what what's got to be a nice thing for you is that. I believe you have Jeff Fry on. You have a number of different uh, players from different eras that have a different perspective on things. And as uh, as I found out in my own career as a pitcher, I had 13 different pitching coaches. Every one of them wanted to help me. But I found out that, well, what this guy said, nah, this doesn't seem to work for me. And, uh, you know, I it was Johnny Sane and and Eddie Lopat, Mar Grissom taught me the screwball, but you have to learn, you know, what works best for you. And then you have to own your own game. You know, they, it doesn't say losing catcher or losing third base, it's losing pitcher or winning exactly. pitcher. So you have to own, you know, your, your craft. And uh, by listening, by hearing information from a lot of different people, you can, I think, eventually find out what's best for you. Yeah, that's the trick, especially today's youth and parents. There's so much information out there. I'm lucky because we get to filter it before it comes on the show. So we have we've had we have great hosts and we've had some incredible guests on the show. And with these kids and families out here, we're, we have the advantage of you know filtering it beforehand, but also having a background to know how to filter it organically. Some of these parents and kids out there, they don't have the background. And whatever is the loudest, sometimes they listen to. And that's where a lot yeah. of people talk today, a lot of these injuries are coming from. They they do whatever everybody else is doing. Yeah. So, well, we, we covered a ton today. And I've kept you, yeah. guys, I, I kept you for an hour almost. What, what kind of parting shots did you want to leave the audience with? Or was there something we didn't cover that you wanted to hit on? No, I, I think what will be interesting now, we're, we're at uh, the quarter mile mark. 
you know, that's a fourth of the way through the season. And managers in the past uh, that I played for, like uh, uh, Chuck Tanner, I'll use him for an example. He thought the first 40 games, I want to find out what kind of team I've had. Is this is Johnny Smith, who came out of spring training, looking real good? Is he is he the player we thought he would be, or is he not playing too? And then we go to the general manager, and we say, okay, this is where we're at. This is what we need. We need another starter. We need whatever. It's more difficult today because of the injury factor. And then you then you work from now till Labor Day, and you hope that Labor Day you are in a position. It's kind of like uh, watching a horse race. That last quarter mile, you got something left that you can get to the finish line ahead of the other guys. So we're at the quarter mile mark. It's going to be interesting to see is Baltimore for real. You know, guys like Cano, and you mentioned they're good young players. They have Rutschman. I think they have a, a Gunnar Henderson. Who's oh, yeah. a young player and hasn't started to hit yet, but are they going to be there? Is Pittsburgh going to, you know, LA Angels are over 500 to, you know, now from now to Labor Day, you're going to find out uh, if, if those were just uh, flashes of lightning the first 40 games or are these teams for real? Yeah. And one, one positive that I, I meant to mention when you were talking about Tampa Bay, we had some scouts on that do advanced scouting last week and, they all seem to hit on the way Tampa Bay prepares throughout the week and even prepares kind of old school through the season where they're actually out there taking BP and doing fundamental work, um, positional work defensively, which we haven't seen in a while. I don't think a lot of teams are doing that. So I was glad to hear that um, at least one sh- one show, or I'm sorry, not one show, but one team is at least getting out there doing things that way. Well, that's good because, you know, when, when, uh, when, I was with the Cardinals. Whitey was there. That's the year year we won the World Series. He insisted that the starting infield take two rounds of infield practice every day and the outfield so they would throw to the bases. And that used to be something that scouts came to watch, that fans came to watch. And now, with all the pregame promotions, I mean, the players are off the field and there's still an hour to go before game time. And they don't take infield anymore. Uh, I mean, they, they take ground balls during during batting practice, but uh, that was not only appealing to the fans, but uh, it was just a staple where every day, uh, you you know, you, you practice where the cutoff man should be in position, yeah. little things like that that really affect the outcome of a game, and they're totally ignored now. Yeah, I think, you know, and I don't think it's a lot to ask, but I used to do, you know, in minimum, you know, 50, 60 fungos. Um, and I always asked for, don't hit them right at me, hit them random. And then yeah. I hated the bot. I hated, I couldn't stand fungo hitters that got backspin on the ball. I was like, I'm never going to get one of those. And if I do, I don't need practice for it. That's good. That's a layup. And then, um, I like to take two rounds off a of live BP. I thought that was probably even more beneficial than sure. the fungos. Cause you were getting live reads off the hands. You're seeing how the yeah. hands. So, good. but, um, yeah, no, well, well, Jim, great show again. I appreciate you jumping in right after golf today and giving us an hour of, of pure knowledge and phenomenal uh, what you do for our audience. And we certainly appreciate you uh, and what you bring to the network here. So thanks so well, much. I, I enjoy doing it. And I hope, uh, you know, I hope we get some some questions. People, I'm, I'm not afraid if you disagree with me or think there's, you know, other ways that people should be doing things. It'd be good to hear uh, because, you know, even at 84, uh, I like to adapt to what's happening today. So I'm, I'm eager to learn if I think it's 
better than the way things have been done in the past. Yeah, I'll start pulling questions. We had over 700 today, which I'm almost done answering everyone back. So we'll start adding two, three questions per show for you. And you can you can be uh, you can decide which ones we want to hit on. But we'll we'll start pulling some off pitching and, and otherwise, because I'm sure uh, with the with the way that we covered topics on this show, you'll be able to provide some great insight on any and everything as it pertains to baseball. So, yeah. Now next week, if we do our show, like say next week, Friday, it'll be interesting atmosphere because I'm going to be the manager for one team and my former teammate. And uh, I was kind of a mentor to him. Burt Blylevin is yeah. going to be the manager for the other team. And it's called the hall of fame classic game. There'll be 30 players, one former player from every team. And then Fergie Jenkins will be there. I think Raleigh fingers, Lee Smith, uh, and uh, it's a it's a charity weekend for the Hall of Fame, so I'll be running into a lot of former uh, former players that are there, and uh, I'm sure I'll pick up a lot of uh, various viewpoints on what's going on in the game today. That'd be great. Well, yeah, we'd love to get their their thoughts on our show as well, and see what uh, what we can do to help their voice get heard throughout there. So, will you, you'll be doing the show from Cooperstown. Yes, good deal. Okay, well that'll be great. I'll make I'll make note of that and. I'm glad that we're able to do it there, and good luck in that game. Uh, don't be afraid to bunt some guys over. Yeah, that's what my buddy of mine was saying to me. Dave Golf, he said, now I want you to get – I see, I'm going to take the biggest slugger on the team. I'm going to give him the bunt sign. That's right. <laughs> A little hit and run, little delayed steals. No straight steals, though. Right. Well, great. Well, our, to our audience, we want to thank you guys for your support. 18,000, almost 18,000. I want to be presumptuous. I'm thinking by tomorrow we'll be up there. Subscribers, download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. We can keep providing you great content like we do here on Cots Corner every week. Um, if you rate and review, we can keep battling those analytics of the podcast world. Hit us up on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher. 72 countries now, grassroots all the way to MLB front offices. We're just trying to build a better baseball IQ. We, we love the ears that we have right now. And as always, just prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truths about baseball because we're going to hit you head on. This program, like all the programs on our network, does not have any place for any of the comfortable little lies telling out there. So we're going we're gonna to hit those straight. And this is Cott's Corner, episode 184. Uh, and Jim Cott, Hall of Famer, thanks so much for all you do. My have pleasure. A, have a good weekend. You too.